Everybody stand up. We could use this for a minute. Stand up and stretch. But also, pat someone nearby on the back. Pat someone on the back. Usually not a hug or a handshake. Yeah, give them a pat on the back. All right, that's just one person. Go ahead and receive your pat on the back. Go ahead, receive it. And now let me ask you a question. Is that why you came to church today? You came to witness a friend's baptism. Having endured first this sermon and then the Seven Mile Beach Sun, you say with some satisfaction, maybe to your mom later, hey, you know, I've done all right in the God department today. A couple hours, this and that, won't be that long. I get a symbolic pat on the back. For the rest of us, you know, certainly most of us would describe you as a pretty good guy, pretty good bloke, pretty good bobo, you know, whatever it might be, pretty good lady. But you might be here looking for reassurance that, hey, I just want to know that I'm on the right path. I'm heading in the right direction. And you know, getting that kind of reassurance wouldn't be the worst motivation for coming to church today. In fact, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 37, or one of these Bibles we have in the chair pockets. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 37 where we're going to meet a young, successful, good guy whose motive in coming to Jesus is looking for a proverbial pat on the back. Reassurance that he's on the right path, on the road to heaven. Let's read Mark 10, starting in verse 17. We'll read through verse 37. Have a Bible out for that. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey to Jerusalem, A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness, i.e. lie. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me disheartened by what Jesus said, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. 
people often respond to this very famous moment in Jesus' ministry in one of two extremes, both of which, I believe, miss the point. Sometimes people respond to this with the immediate question, does Jesus really ask us to give up everything we have, all the riches, all the wealth, to follow Him? In fact, one gentleman I know recently used this story of evidence for why he struggles with the Bible. Just a couple weeks ago, he said, this is why I struggle with the Bible, that Jesus would ask this of me. I mean, really? Plus, I don't see Christians trading in their luxury cars and oceanfront condos. Good point. So there's that extreme. There's the other kind of extreme, which is feeling vaguely guilty about being more Uncle Scrooge than Mother Teresa. And so as a result, you give some or more than usual. You resolve in your heart, you're going to walk away and say, you know, I need to give more. So I'm going to do that. It'll last for a little bit. Now, the first extreme of do we have to give up all that we have usually ends in despair. Because at that moment we think, man, I'm not even going to think about becoming a Christian. I'm not even going to think about seriously following Jesus. The other extreme, feeling vaguely guilty, kind of resolving, you know, I'm going to be more generous. I'm going to get a little bit extra this morning or to, to my neighbor or somebody in need to the local charity. That usually results in self-righteousness. Oh, I finally did enough. I'm probably good in God's eyes. Neither extreme as an immediate response gets to the core of why Jesus challenged this man as he did, nor why the Holy Spirit chose to include this moment in Scripture for us to learn from and respond to. Rather, the point that this rich man just barely missed is described once, though it's pictured twice. Described explicitly in an odd moment in verse 21. And Jesus, looking that this rich man loved him. The word translated here, looking at this man, is an intensified compound of the normal word look. It's like a super word for look, an uber word for look. And so it carries a sense of not just look, but examine, scrutinize, to see a person's inner detail. But it comes in an odd moment doesn't it? Because it's just after this man responds with his religious report card and before he walks away showing his true colors about wealth versus God. It's at this moment Jesus examines carefully the inner detail of his heart, the inner worship of his heart, and loves him with an agape love, an unconditional love. A love that expects no response doesn't care how he responds. He just loves him. So in a nutshell this morning, here's kind of the message, the sermon in a nutshell. It's this. Jesus looks deep inside you and loves you. And that's enough. And that's enough. His love is worth enough to give up anything else that gets in the way. It's enough to respond radically to a call that lies beyond your sort of cocoon of comfort. It's enough to put to death what you've always but mistakenly believed gives you life. His love is enough. Now this story is highly individual and confrontational. We're meant to listen to Jesus' words for ourselves, for yourself. And then look. Take a real look in here. 
And in this encounter, number one, Jesus loves this rich man and you enough to give you the proper measuring stick. Number two, Jesus loves this rich man and you enough to confront your real master. And number three, Jesus loves this rich man and you enough to free you from the world's most sophisticated prison. And that's our roadmap this morning. All right? So first, Jesus loves you enough to give you the proper measuring stick. Jesus responds to the man's question about the right path for eternal life with a question. Why do you call me good? It's a very sort of Socrates moment, right? Interesting question. Why do you call me good? Ask the question back. No one is good except God alone. Which is a curious response because Jesus' whole claim and reason from coming down here to planet Earth is to reveal Himself to us as a God worth trusting. So why would He say, why do you call me good? It seems like He almost seems to punt. I mean, Jesus, are you saying you're not God? But if we stop there, I think we miss His aim, which is to challenge this man's standard or His measuring stick. Now, is He challenging the man's standard for what is truly good? Or is he challenging this man's standard for Jesus and who Jesus is, whom he twice calls teacher, but not master or Lord or Son of God? I think it's both. He's challenging the standard for good and the man's standard for Jesus. But we will deal with the former. Jesus is challenging this man's standard for good. Why do we know this? Because look at his response to Jesus' next question. I've done pretty well. I've done pretty good. All these commandments I have kept since my youth. We are supposed to get a picture then here of a guy who, who's rich, who's experienced some success. But yeah, but he's also a pretty good guy. We know people like this. You live in Grand Cayman where young people have success. Sometimes at an early age. But pretty good people. Someone who, if we were to compare him to other guys we know, especially to other wealthy guys who let early professional success often go to their heads, we would say, pretty good guy. He's good to his parents. He doesn't hurt anyone. He doesn't lie or slander, though he could. In fact, he hasn't even indulged in sex outside of marriage. And that's the laundry list we see here, isn't it? But good compared to others isn't the measuring stick. God's revealed commandments, His revealed law is their measuring stick. As lived out here in high definition, only by the Son of God. Only the Son of God is able to live out these commandments to that high standard that the Father has set. I was in the doctor's office this past week, and an elderly nurse, instead of just measuring me, she was kind of going through her list, said, Oh, young man, you probably just know your height. Why don't you tell me? I said, well, ma'am, I'm uh, six feet, one inch. I'm actually six feet, five-eighths inches, but I round up, you know, <laughs> fair enough. I have a brother and dad who are six foot three, so you always try to get a little bit taller. And uh, she said, well, you know, uh, that's actually not going to do for my chart. Uh, it's the wrong measuring stick. I need centimeters, she said, and to which I was ignorant because I am American. And one of the things as American that we prize of many of our liberties since the revolution is to get rid of as many U's as possible in words, unnecessary U's, uh, to drive on the wrong side of the road, to show that we're different, 
and have nothing to do with the metric system. We just want to be different. It's actually pretty arrogant. I had the wrong measuring stick. She needed centimeters, 184 centimeters, by the way. The Creator breathed into each person here undeserved life. And the measuring stick He gives to respond to Him, to respond in love and in gratitude towards our Creator, is obedience to His law. And nothing short of that. You see, though people's default measuring stick for being a good person, for being good, feeling like they're on the right path with God, on the right road to eternal life, people's default measuring stick is other people. It's other people. It's looking around. It's why we like our reality TV shows in extremes, don't we? Hoarders and Honey Boo Boo. All right, that's what people like. Why? Because they can look at these lives on screen and say, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty moral person. After looking at this. I really do think this is why it's so popular. Jesus first reminds this man, initially hoping for reassurance and a pat on the back, hey man, God's law is inflexible. And you could argue, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Inflexible. I thought God was loving. I mean, look, I have a weakness or two. I'm a generally loving person full of integrity elsewhere. To which the Bible says in James 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole of the law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Because God is perfect. He can't allow into his presence any imperfection. So if you've lied once, you're a liar. If you've lusted, you're an adulterer. If you've stolen even a piece of gum, you're a thief. And would even you allow liars, adulterers, or thieves into heaven if it was up to you? Hopefully, here you might see your inability to measure up and reach out to Jesus as more than just a teacher, but also a Savior. Now, notice of the Ten Commandments that Jesus rattles off here to this young man, he left off two pretty important categories. He left off the categories of put nothing before God, right? The first two of the Ten Commandments. And also, don't covet more. Don't want more. Don't, don't always lust after more things. Do not covet. That's because Jesus is about to address in this man a deeper law than even the law. There's a, there's a deeper spiritual law at work within each person to give themselves over to something. Everyone makes someone or something their master. Everyone worships something. Everyone wants to give themselves over to something. And Jesus loves you enough to confront your real master. Look with me in verse 21. I'll read through verse 20. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Remember, he examined him, saw that his real master was not Yahweh, was not the Father. He loved him. He said to him, you lack one thing. I can tell from looking at your life, looking at your heart. Go and sell all that you have. Give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. He was disheartened. Walked away sorrowful. Because he had great possessions. This rich young man is able to have some good days following the commands. 
but he didn't have his heart in it. Right? And you know this from experience. You can actually do good. You can be externally a good person. You can follow God's commands even, but you don't have your heart in it. Jesus knows he didn't bring along his heart. He left his heart somewhere else and not in San Francisco. So, so when he asks him to sell everything and follow him, the man walks away disheartened. Literally, a disengaged heart. Because his heart, it turns out, is back with his great possessions. Where do you think he's walking away, by the way, when he goes away? At least I have my possessions. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, wherever your treasure lies, there you'll find your heart also. where you walk back to. See, this man could follow the commands of God as long as he didn't have to give his heart over to them. He could even follow Jesus as long as his heart could remain disengaged. I really think if Jesus had said only, hey, follow me. If he'd given him the disciples, he'd call, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I believe he would have done it. He would have gone along because he could put up with just about anything. And so, by the way, might we as long as anything he did religiously allowed him to return his heart back to his possessions, to his great wealth. See, money mastery went so deep and still goes so deep that it would blind him. It would always blind him from seeing Jesus' true worth. Even if it was just temporarily, he knows he must ask this man to rid of every trace of wealth if he's ever to treasure the love of Jesus, to see this love with which Jesus loves him. You see, for you and I, it's not necessarily money that masters us, but it usually is. It usually is. Which leads to our third point. Jesus loves you enough to free you from the world's most sophisticated prison. I'm talking Alcatraz here. Look with me in verses 23 through 26. Jesus looked around, said to his disciples, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle, a sewing needle, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Huge hyperbole, obviously exaggerating, not referring to some uh, esoteric entrance into Jerusalem that was made up in the Middle Ages, by the way. This is an actual sewing needle. Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through it than to have eternal life, to be freed from loving and being mastered by and worshiping money so you can worship the God who can give you eternal life. I mean, this is an Alcatraz kind of prison break that has to take place. The love of money, also known as greed, is the world's most sophisticated, inextricable prison. And I think it's this way because for three reasons. Let me give them to you. Number one, the love of money is insatiable, unquenchable. The very Hebrew word, this is interesting for money, kesef, actually comes from a verb meaning to languish after something. Isn't that interesting? Even back to the, he- the Hebrew people knew that there's something about Money, it just never satisfied. It would, never, it would just slake your thirst, right? Sam Walton of Walmart fame, uh, his wife Helen admitted, I kept saying, Sam, we're making a good living. Why expand? Why expand so much more? 
The stores are getting further and further away. And this is what she said. It's almost comical now. After the 17th store, though, I realized there wasn't going to be any stopping of it. You know, there are close to 8,000 Walmarts today. She said this at store 17. When John, uh, John D. Rockefeller asked how much money it takes to make a man happy, he famously replied, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. So first of all, it's, it's such a prison for us because it's insatiable, the love of money. But also, secondly, because few of us see it in ourselves. Few of us see a love of money in ourselves. Sure, we see the Sam Waltons and the Rockefellers of the world struggle with greed, but it never happens to me. It's not in me. But again, people's default is always to compare themselves to other people, isn't it? There's always someone greedier. There's always someone less in touch with humanity because of what money has done to them, more shallow because of what money has done to them than us. We don't tend to compare ourselves with the rest of the world. We usually compare ourselves with people in our particular socioeconomic bracket. So we'll say, oh, you know, about people more like us. I don't spend money on my kids like they do. I have these huge birthday parties and this and that. We don't do that. Or we don't go where they go, where she goes on holidays, or as often as they go. Or we'll say, you know, man, I, I don't work. It's like I get exercise, but I don't like spend money at the most expensive gym. I go to a different gym. I work out, you know, at my leaking condominium complex with a, with a you know, squeaky exercise bike. You know why they go to this CrossFit's 24-hour spa and lose weight lounge over there, right? Where you can get anything you want in, in, a, in a bottle. <laughs> At least I don't do that. Of course, we fail to recognize most people don't live in condominium complexes nor have their own gym in them. I remember my favorite living pastor, uh, Tim Keller, uh, once shared about how he's doing a series of teaching on the seven deadly sins. And his wife said to him, I bet you the lowest attention, uh, sorry, lowest attendance you get will be on greed. Of the seven deadly sins, the lowest attendance will be greed. And she was right, and it wasn't even close. Why? Because people don't think they struggle with greed. They just don't see it. People are willing to say, I struggle with lust, gossip, self-image, uh, my use of humor and words. But nearly 13 years of being a pastor, I've never had someone come to me and say, Ryan, man, I, I struggle spending money on myself. I struggle with hoarding money for myself. People don't say that. Say, I'm just saving it. We don't see it. Thirdly, this prison is so sophisticated and embedded and difficult to escape because attached to money idolatry are what I call tag-along idols. In other words, Worshiping money never comes by itself. It comes with other idols. So I can say, by the way, uh, I love basketball. I love football, proper football, of course. I love being a dad. And they, these things, they'll all have a way of when you overlove them, they disappoint you. They obviously unsatisfy you at some point. So, for instance, some of you are hurt when your team loses in the World Cup. All right, in proper football. Maybe that even happened yesterday for some of you. Right? And you just recognize again, I can't love this too much. 
Or your team, maybe your basketball team, faces elimination. I don't know. And you realize, I can't love this too much. Or maybe your kids who you love so much, but you overlove, they enter into this bratty, naughty season of life. And you recognize, but I invested so much in them. Or your kids grow up not to share the same values with which they were raised. And you, it breaks your heart. And you recognized they might have been an idol. You recognized you overloved them. These are what I call simple idols. They easily keep us from God, but they're also easily exposed. They're always a point where if you look for them, you know they disappoint you or they break your heart. No one loves just money. It's not a simple idol. People love money because through it they can experience power and influence. Some people love money because through it they can give generously so that they look good and generous in the eyes of others and they get the approval of others. Some people get money to gain success in social circles. Some get it to to look beautiful and look more attractive. Some get it so they'll make them feel more secure and be in control. Nothing can hurt me if I just have enough. Could go on, but even just there, we went through the idols of power, success, approval, the in crowd, vanity, control, security, and the chains just get heavier and heavier. You see that? Enslaved further and further. This man walks away sorrowful from Jesus. And we're not told, but given that he had great possessions and Jesus says to give them all away, it's likely that he found his ultimate security in having lots of money stored away for a rainy day. Security and control were his tag-along idols to the money. and They just enslaved him further. Now, what are we going to do about this? What, what can liberate a person from such a multi-layered bondage, such a sophisticated prison? It would be easy and straightforward at this point to suggest various strategies of sacrificial giving as God's means to free you. So, for example, I could say, hey, you know, just give at the beginning of each month as a practical demonstration that you're giving your first earthly treasure to God because He's your first true treasure. So at the beginning of each month, you give, you tithe, you give to a charity. Or secondly, you can say, hey, occasionally, but not irregular, make sure your giving hurts a little. That pinch or that punch to the gut ensures that you're trusting in Christ's provision and not just your own salary. Or I can say, hey, when someone you love leaves the island, give them something you treasure. Just, just as a way to put your heart there, that you treasure God's people and you treasure others more than you treasure earning money. Or you can say, hey, when someone asks you for something, surprise them by giving it to them. Just say, oh, you like that, huh? Have it. All these sound well and good as strategies to liberate you, and at some point God might use them to further free you, but... For the wealthy to start here is a kind of instruction manual or checklist. If I just do this, it'll free me from money. If I just do this, typifies what Jesus meant when he said, with man, this is impossible. You can't just develop a checklist or manual. That's just a temporary fix. Just like a little bit of cold medicine for the disease and for the idol that's so deeply embedded within us. Here's the solution. It's coming here. We, the readers, are let in on a moment which this rich young man was still yet incapable of seeing because he loved money so much. Jesus loved this idolater like, just like those who seem near to God, just like those who did right for God, just like the future world-changing disciples 
we're told that Jesus looks at this man with the same intensified love. Remember, he looked at him in verse 21. It's used again of the disciples in verse 27. Look at that. Jesus looked at them. He looked at the disciples in the same self-examination. Notice he didn't use the same word for looking in verse 23 where he just superficially looked around at people. But Peter, as the eyewitness here, is telling Mark, he saw something about Jesus at that point. That he deeply loved this man. He deeply looked at this man. Jesus looked the same way at the people who were good, who were righteous. We're told that Jesus likewise sees the inner detail of a man's heart bowed down to wealth, not the Father, who preferred control, self-sufficiency, self-security to God's sovereign will, his divine provision, his eternal protection. And despite the fact that he was bowing down to another God, Jesus loved him. Do you see that? It's in that moment Jesus loved him. These things are possible with God. An intensified love of money can only be defeated by the intensified look and love of the Savior. Such an intense look and love keeps you away from the despair that all Christians must give away everything. Why? Because Jesus first loves you as you are with your money. He loves you in that moment. Bow down to another God. And yet, such an intense look and love blasts away the notion that your inability and idolatry can be alleviated through guilt philanthropy. You've got to replace what you treasure. Then again, don't you want to when you hear about this kind of love? A friend of mine who doesn't attend Sunrise but lives here and came in allowed me to share uh, this story with you this morning. Uh, She had $193 in her bank account this past Monday and no job. She asked God, And what can I do with this? And to her surprise, she sensed God prompt her to give 100 of that $193 to someone she knows, to give it away. She recalled Jesus' words, seek my kingdom first. Seek me first, and I'll provide the rest. Seek me as your treasure, and I'll take care of you as your money manager. She delivered the money. The woman was grateful because she had to pay for her son's graduation fees and didn't know from where the money was going to come. The next morning, having forgotten, freely forgotten about the money, she got a call from a friend asking her if she could start work in an hour. She got a job. Start work in an hour. Though applying for countless jobs, it had been months since she had worked. Now, I'm going to say something strange to you to conclude this message this morning. Don't be inspired by her faith. If you're inspired by her faith or her sacrifice, you'll likely just revert revert to this vague guilt that we discussed in the beginning. You might muster up enough faith to give now, but it won't get rid of the greed in your heart. Be inspired instead by what's on the other side of her sacrifice, that Jesus is worthy. He's that worthy. His love is that valuable. The mere notion of a relationship with him is to be that treasured. Consider, he examines us closely. He has noted the still present greed in our hearts. Our heart bowed down to another God and without looking away, looking deep into us. 
He still loves us. And that should be enough. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful that you look deep into our hearts and you see us enslaved, still bowing down, so many of us, so many of us, if we're really honest, to greed, to a love of money, and all the idols that come with it. And chained and enslaved. And you love us. May that love, proven and finally demonstrated on the cross, free us. As your servant Paul later said in 2 Corinthians 8, where he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, though though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, by giving up all his rights, by by being separated from the Father on the cross, enduring hell, we might become rich. May we put our heart and find our treasure in you, Jesus, and so be freed from enslavement to a love of money. It's in your name we pray. Amen.